Guess who's back? Back again. Chuck Shady's back. Tell a friend. I can't remember the rest of the words. But guys, thanks for having me back. One question. Yeah. How did it go in Vegas? Okay. So I made it through lunch. So maybe about top third in the tournament. <laughs> it started in lunch. Oh, whoa. Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It started okay. at 8.30 in the morning. So right. I made it through lunch. So top third finish. I rank my play at about a B because what they do in this tournament is they jack the blinds up pretty quickly because it's a one-day tournament, 350 people. And so I may have had one or two more blinds left in me if I'd played everything correctly. That being said, I chose to go all in when I had a king queen of diamonds. So even if I would have had those one or two more blinds in my hip pocket, I probably would have uh, pushed it in. Anyway, Chris Atherton had big slick, took me out. So I got I got two other quick stories from my trip and then we'll we'll get into it. I promise. I set up a podcast studio right outside the tournament. And it was really cool, great cameras, all that. I was grabbing people. Hey, man, come talk. Some of the best content, energy-wise, bad beat stories in the tournament, all that, within the next 72 hours, literally all 20 people I interviewed had texted me, too. You can't use that. I was drunk. Oh, (laughs) shit. (laughs) So... That will so never, you do have great content. I have great content. It may never be seen. But right. anyway. and, and which notables did you beat? Who notables? That's a higher good rank. Uh, I think did you, did I, you I beat think, Pickering. Yeah, I went out before. I, I mean, I, I lasted longer than Pickering. Wow. I will. Uh, I will say that the. Uh, um, so that was cool. Second, really cool thing is me and the girlfriend met in Seattle, uh, kind of last weekend. And the Waterfront Hotel in Seattle was built because I think like the 1961 or 60 World's Fair was in Seattle. They built this hotel. And at the height of Beatlemania, hotels were like, no way. We don't want the Beatles here. It's a shit show. All these screaming women and all. The Waterfront Hotel was like, "Uh uh-uh. They embraced it. We want the Beatles here. Please stay here. We want your press conferences here. So there's an iconic photo of the Beatles staying in a suite at the Waterfront Hotel, fishing out the window. Awesome. It's a really cool photo. They embrace it. So that exact suite, the Beatles suite. Chucky was Me and the girlfriend stayed there this weekend, which was very, or last weekend. It was very, very cool. And I took the same photo. I didn't have a fishing rod with me, but hanging out the uh, door is very cool. That's awesome, man. So that was my trip. No prop. The fifth Beatle. No prostate involved. <laughs> you and exactly. Eddie Murphy. So. Yeah, Clarence. Me, me and a, That's right. All right, issue one. Big story this week. I think it was Bloomberg that put out the story. We'll give credit where credit's due. U.S. major oil and gas companies trading at 2x multiples to Europe. Major oil companies. What's going on there? Well, we've we've talked a lot about the majors lately because they're either – in the spotlight or in the crosshairs. Um, yeah, did you catch Colin McClellan's graphic, infographic on uh, Twitter this weekend? It's yeah. pretty good. So, yeah, I did not. What was it? Apple's valuation, or Apple's earnings versus everyone else in oil and gas. I did see that. How it just kills everyone else. Anyway. So within the majors group, though, you have this separation, and we've seen it in a lot of areas, but 
it was, I, I think it was, uh, it was pointed out again uh, during earnings season, you know, the European majors trade at valuations that are 40% discounted to their U.S. Mm-hmm. counterparts. So we're talking about BP and Shell versus, and Total versus Exxon and Chevron. And, you know, the, the factors behind that, you know, I think not insignificantly as, as is pointed out, or you look at the, at the capital allocation, at least over the last few years, we've seen a lot more of the capital go into non-oil, non-oil and gas parts of the portfolio, namely, you know, frontier stuff related to renewables, right. et cetera. So transition, all that. And these have much lower return on investment profiles. Or no visible returns on or, investment or, or yet. Zero. And so, yeah, good right. point. And so, Kirk, I, I think one notable voice in all in the middle of all this is Shell's new new CEO talking about really a ruthless relook at at portfolio and capital allocation. Any any thoughts there? No, YL is smart. I mean, when he asked me when I was at Shell Ventures about. You know, what value you bring to the company? I said, absolutely none. Um, I do make good investments. But <laughs> but to answer a guy that really wants to know, he is disciplined. And I think he's going to put Shell on a much better path of thinking about the investors first, the shareholders, over everyone else, which I think we could have another debate on. But I think Weil is, is trying to position the company to be a leader in the market. So, so I think one thing that we were talking about right before we started is my question was, is this just a universal type issue? Meaning, does Europe just trade at lower multiples than the U.S.? And I could get that because of regulatory environment, taxing uh, regiments, et cetera, and all that. And we pulled up, who did we pull up? We pulled up Microsoft, Microsoft. versus SAP. SAP. And so Microsoft's trading at 28 times earnings, SAP 20. So there is some of that, but not 2x like we're seeing in the major oil and gas companies. I think one of the things, Mark's bringing it all back down to data versus emotions. Capital discipline, the the U.S.-based companies are spending their capital on projects that are having higher returns. There's a second element that that I think Mark and I were discussing earlier is about the trading. Like BP and Shell are the largest traders in commodity traders in, in energy of anyone out there. Bigger than Traffic Era, bigger than the smaller shops. Um, trading firms, even though they're in some one estimates is that both Shell and BP have made 10 to 15% of their earnings from trading. Trading by its nature of being highly volatile and risky trades at a lower multiple. So there's some fundamentals, I think, based on just the makeup of the organizations that say, hey, U.S.-based firms are just set up to have a better return profile. Which is interesting when you take what Exxon's talked about or has been in the press lately about them really repositioning or rethinking their <laughs> their trading organization, right? So- Yeah, that is true. Right. So one of the-, <clears throat> one of the, the structural leaders in terms of valuation among the majors. It'll be interesting to see if there's, you know, meaningful impact either way as, you know, a new new business becomes or a newly revamped business becomes a, a bigger part of the front line. They've been talking about this earning for, story. They've been talking about this for two years. And since I'm close with a lot of traders, um, there's been a lot of noise, but there has been a lot like 
They're not poaching anybody. There's been it's really interesting to watch. Like I don't know if Exxon really has, you know, it, 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 it in their DNA to be successful there. The second piece I thought was interesting is I've been sort of reading about, you know, the activists really have been involved. Engine number one in on the board of Exxon trying to get them to put more money towards renewables and and. What's interesting is a couple of things. One is Exxon says we'll commit less than ten percent of their of their capex over the next five years towards those projects. So it's not enough to the activist investors. But what I find interesting is this is a very non Exxon move. Is they've brought in someone to run their sort of lower carbon business from General Motors, a guy that ran their self driving car unit. So isn't that not Exxon? Because I thought. Only Exxon lifers are allowed to move up the ranks. Is that true or not true? You're an Exxon, former Exxon. Well, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Their CFO came from outside. Ooh. <clears throat> and I, I do think it's more, maybe it's not the rule, but moving from exception to rule where these newer segments that you at least try and have to figure out, if not compete in, you need some expertise from outside the culture, so to speak. Right. So um, the other thing that it's also know, easier to fire those guys. <laughs> I have ex personal experience there. I had it's a, easier to fire the new person that right. comes in that doesn't look or talk like a doc, you know, the, the in certain instances, <laughs> they can fire a life or two. As, uh, yeah. as I know. Oh, do you have experience. Yeah, I have experience. Shit. The other thing about Exxon is, and I, I had a back and forth on Twitter. I won't mention with who, you know, the decarb push or the decarb faction is winning when engine number one won their seats. Well, they're still a pretty significant minority on the board. And two, around that time, there was a big push to get the majors, all of the majors, to get in lockstep in terms of scope three commitments. And Exxon didn't get on that slippery slope. Right. So, you know, are those, are those somewhat preemptive moves to further, I guess, solidify your path of, you know, remaining true to your core legacy business of what generates returns for you. And I think, mm. think there's a lot to do with that. So one last thing on this point, when we talk about trading and Exxon going in, I had Bill Perkins and Bill Perkins was John Arnold's kind of right-hand man uh, during the Centaurus days of and Bill came on the podcast and we were talking. I, I basically said, look, dude, there's the market's so efficient. There's so much information out there. Nobody can make money trading. And he goes, then why have my returns been so great? And I said, well, if you fill up Rice Stadium and you flip a coin, somebody's going to flip heads 20 times in a row. And he laughed. And instead <laughs> of getting mad, he said, no, let me tell you what's going on, Chuck. What's happened in this world is that trading and the like has turned into a group of buyers that are not seeking to make a profit. They're buying insurance. I, if you're a producer, you're not going, do I think natural gas is $5 three years from now? Therefore, if I can buy a call at 315, I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. It's do I want to lock in at five or not? Cause that's right. what the market is. And so he goes, in a world where everyone buys insurance, people that provide liquidity to the market, like me, i.e. the market makers, are an insurance company and we charge premiums yeah, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And the premiums are big, fat, and juicy these days. 
because I am willing to take a position on what I think the price should be. And that's rare because producers, financers, even consumers like airlines don't go, what's oil, gasoline or jet fuel going to be in five years? It is that I want to lock or not lock. And so I found that interesting and I actually bought off on it for the first time that somebody in that large and that liquid a market could actually make money because there are so few people that are actually trying to do that. I wonder if Exxon's seen that, you know, because it, it's not an Exxon thing to say we have the best balance sheet. We have the lowest cost of capital out there. Let's use it to do riskier stuff. They've always been very thoughtful about, do we have a competitive advantage? I mean, I was just, just looking at the gas trading in the U.S. Um, you know, the same players have traded the same gas 20 times. It's it's actually super interesting. There's so much tra- so much trading going on uh, based on trying to balance your book. And then you have you do have those that are willing to, you know, like especially like the hedge funds that are willing to take risk. And then with big risk, it's either big reward and big failure. But, you know, there there's for John for, for the John Arnold's out there. There's always the person on the other side that is not telling the story, you know, in, inside the mansion. They're telling a different story. They're, they're, they're doing something else. My favorite line. They're starting a that, podcast. My favorite line from that old podcast was Bill was talking about, and one day John called in Rich. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. Hey, Mark, you sent a text last night and I missed it. Um, Kirk, maybe you got a chance to see it. But lithium in California, what was 60 Minutes saying about that? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this has been covered recently, but I th- I think it's grown in some prominence. They had a story called Lithium Valley, and it's really around the Salton Sea area near the Imperial Valley in Southern California, which is about plus or minus 40 miles north of the border with Mexico. And there's there's been a lot of geothermal power generation going on for a long time. Uh, it's a It's a unique spot in that it's um, it's a fairly contaminated spot. The lake was essentially formed by flooding events in the early 1900s that accidentally in 1905 breached the dike when the Colorado River breached its levees and flooded the Salton Sink. Wow, look at that! Right, interesting. And and so because of the the tectonic activity, you got the Pacific plates pulling apart. In that area, you've you, you don't have a lot of crust, so the magma is very close to the surface, which creates a lot of mm. neat thermal dynamics. Not very far below the surface, but you're generating power by using steam from the 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 superheated brine that comes out of the subsurface. It also contains a lot of lithium in solution. So the notion is that this somewhat catalytic process. Um, it's ionic exchange. Actually, you can run the discharge brine after you've used it to generate power and use the ceramic beads to um, basically extract or adhere to the beads, the lithium, right. and then flush it out with um, what's the estimated lithium acid? potential out of this lake? At least in this story, and I've seen numbers subsequent to um, seeing the story last night, but one realistic capacity or full capacity commercial capacity estimates on the order of 300,000 tons a year, which is about half of current global 
uh, demand. Now, it does have a cost hurdle to get over, but if you look at hmm. the potential to extend existing geothermal power generation facilities, the issues around cost and scale start to you know get at least intriguing. And there are, I think, 10 players out there in the geothermal business divided among uh, a Berkshire portfolio company, energy, and then a company called Energy Source, and then another one called Controlled Thermal Resources mm. that have plans of varying degrees of, of mm. prototype to commercial scale that are expected to come online somewhere between next year and 26, 27, right? And so this, this is interesting in that we've been talking a lot here lately about where's, where, where do all the raw materials come from uh, right. to drive the expansion in things like battery storage and EVs. And, you know, the West has, I think, been less and less of a participant in producing those raw materials. And so the notion that we could potentially produce all of the U.S. demand for lithium going forward out of this arguably uh, at least better ESG profile, clean up the salt and sea and extract the lithium, um, in, on our own turf is is pretty intriguing. So I it just caught my attention because it ended up on 60 Minutes. And why was I watching 60 Minutes? Because I got told to turn the the channel off with something other than baseball. There so you there was, as well, you know, there's nothing so on, on Sunday what's night. What's been the reaction from this? Because, I mean, if you're sitting there going, you know, if I'm, if I'm a greenie, this is great. We're going to clean up. We're going to get lithium here and not make 14-year-old kids do it. Or is this the, we just hate it because it's business? Well, I mean, California has this most stringent low carbon fuel standard in the United States. So that's why you're seeing a bunch of projects to make sustainable jet fuels, et cetera, et cetera, to sell into the California market that are popping up around the state of California. Being that this is going to be a pretty, like extracting lithium is, is a dirty business. It'll be interesting to see whether California sort of, you know, gives it a halo and says this is important to us, or they're going to apply the same logic. I'm. It'll be interesting to see where they land here, because it might just be another one of these. Yeah, we have huge resources, but we're not going to actually leverage them. Speaking no, of, I, you know, oil and gas in the United States and, and exporting, but you know, I think a strong, a strong advocate will come from the local community. It's one of the uh, less econ least economically advantaged areas in California. They have, I think, one of the highest, if not the highest, unemployment rate. It's in Imperial Valley, proximal, which is how far away? Fourteen percent unemployment. As a crow flies, I was sort of looking at the map. It's pretty damn close to to Palm Springs. It is. So if I'm, you know, getting a suntan and playing golf every day, I don't know if I want plumes of lithium smoke coming up and ruining my suntan. What do you think? Well, I think because the Salton Sea is evaporating and shrinking, right, and has been for decades, you do have these toxic dust events anyway, right? That doesn't mean the minerals and the toxins have gone away. You've got a lot of, again, decades of agricultural runoff into the Salton Sea. So, you know, anything that can generate additional wealth or well-being that then translates into remediation or cleaning up 
a, a dirty site, I think would be helpful. I just think the economic opportunity that this represents with the intersection of one of the poorest areas yeah. in California is, is, is at least interesting. And that's, that's why I think it made the, the most mainstream of mainstream. I didn't realize this. Having worked for a mining company for just briefly, a short, short time, dust is a huge problem because mining a lot of times takes places in these very arid areas. Huge issue. Like if you could figure out how to solve the dust problem, it's a huge tech play. You can make some money. Yeah. No, I mean, you see them work on the roads where the guy's sitting there spraying water. Yeah. Out on the uh, non potable. Non-potable, no, exactly. No bebe el agua. <laughs> so here's what here's what I will do. I will make it my mission before we record the next BDE. I will find some address. I will write Gavin Newsom a note and just ask what his take is on this. Well, I was actually going to say road trip, road trip, and then but this we still have yet to do Selena road trip. So we I have could, some. I could do Palm Springs over Selena. <laughs> Selena. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go up. Yeah, we could do that. Let's let's oh, put that one, on the calendar. One other part of the segment was they did an interview. Um, I forget his title, but he was with the car manufacturer Stellantis, which is Chrysler, Ram, et cetera, and they are big on signing up for as much capacity as they can get. Yeah, out dude, of this future Let's go. So, gotcha. Interesting. Well, we will watch that. All right, next story. Let's go to Midland. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll give you the pro. Let's go to the con first because I saw this article too, and I was like, "Damn, man." Mark. Yeah, I I hope maybe we can revisit this as well, or we can reprise it next week if Collins here, just given his Midland heritage. But there's a Bloomberg piece that was really a follow-on to the op-ed piece that Travis Stice had written in the um, Wall Street Journal and, and just talking about some of these chronic community underinvestment issues that have been facing the Permian and, and uh, Midland in particular. It relates to everything from infrastructure to hospitals to schools to, you know, adequacy and, and proficiency of teaching. Um, you know, this has been going on for as long as there's been boom bust, it's, it's, it's a multi-decade issue, particularly in the Permian, because we've been out there for over a hundred years. It's, you, you can read a more modern case of boom bust and what it does to a community uh, in Michael Smith's book, The Good Hand, about the whole kind of boom bust saga of Williston. And, and that's a bit of a microcosm. Uh, you always underinvest in the things that you need, um, Family retention in the Midland area uh, is pretty low. It's not a place where people are looking to raise their families. One person who was interviewed as an early 30s Halliburton um, employee said, you know, I came out here for a couple of years to get get trained up and experience. And then, you know, my, my family life will start in Houston. Hmm. Right. So um, in, in the, in the op-ed piece, and it was it was requoted in the Bloomberg piece, Travis, and I'm paraphrasing, says, you know, it, it really, really grates on him when someone says that they're leaving Diamondback because it's the best job they ever had, right? Working for Diamondback was the best job they ever had, yet the uh, the retention for people looking for other things beyond what Midland offers is, is pretty telling, right? So um, one interesting little 
event or anecdote around all this is that um, CrownQuest Jeff Beard had proposed, forget exactly the timing, uh, for a $55 million upgrade of Hogan Park and the big municipal golf course and other things. And that failed recently, I think January or February of this year, a four to two vote. Uh, the council members nor the mayor were available to to comment for this. Um, one other one other data point: Midland spends the Midland School District spends just under eighty nine hundred dollars per student per year, which is pretty significantly below all the other major Texas cities, which are in excess of ten thousand dollars a student. You know, my favorite one of my favorite songs is Jack Ingram, good Austin singer. He wrote a song about Midland. And it's so apropos. He's like, and it's another world altogether, right in the middle of God's country. Smells like money, smells like shit. <laughs> yeah, it smells like hell. And then he's then he goes on, he says, but everyone's dirty. Man, they're all a bunch of gamblers. But some got rich, yeah, but they're still gamblers still. So I had I'd had a JJ Anselme on the podcast. And uh, he wrote the book about Rock Springs, Wyoming. Same sort of thing, extraction mm -hmm. community. And they'd actually had, I think, three different booms. Back in the 1800s, they were some commodity that was being extracted. Now that, you know, and then they had their energy period mm -hmm. and, and all that. I think one thing that I found interesting, kind of comparing and contrasting that versus Midland is, I think one, there'd been a lot more money made out of Midland than there has been uh, yes. out of that area of of uh, Wyoming. And number two, there does feel to be an element of Midland class or Midland people. You know, I think Clayton Williams there his whole life. I think Ted Collins there his whole life and all. And so that's why it's baffling to me that more hasn't happened. I mean, I, I agree with you that. You know, you have these pillars of the community, and the only excuse kind I've of Texas royalty, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I went to the University of Texas, and I went to school with quite a few Midlanders that I adore, and they are classy people. Yeah. The only excuse I've been able to conjure up in my mind about maybe why this is happening is I was probably. 25 years old, early in my career. I'm at Stevens. I'm an associate. I go to the Midland Petroleum Club for lunch. I'm sitting at a table with like seven or eight old guys, right? And I'm sitting there talking and like guy one was like, oh, that's about time I lost my fourth company. Well, and then I lost my fifth company. The ex-wife got the sixth one and all this. And I mean, it was just like water off a duck's back, right? Just talking about all these companies that had fail. Well, being the, the naive youngster, I said, why don't you save some money from the good times? Oh, gosh. You and said that? I said this. Why don't you save some money from the good times so when the bad times happen, you can roll through. And Idiot. One guy puts his arm around me and says, oh, hell, son, that's a lot more fun to spend it. And okay. so <laughs> I think that's the deal is when they have the good time and you go, infrastructure? Nah, let's have a BMW dealership. Yeah. You know, let's go buy a plane. That's exactly and I true. think I think that might be the mindset. One, one of the theories, and this was- They're all a bunch of gamblers. Consider Shock. the source that came out of Bloomberg um, was that, you know, a strong legacy of conservative small government. Yeah, of uh, course. 
type of of profile in in terms of leadership. So we're not going to spend money on public things to the degree that you otherwise think would be more commensurate with how much money people are making and towns yeah. are making in, in the Permian. So I, 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 a couple of weeks ago, I played in a, a U.S. or in a mid-amateur golf tournament and two Midlanders were playing in, from Midland Country Club and they were good golfers and great guys. Well, happens that this year, this is kind of the golf season when it really gets hot. The Texas mid-amateur is being played at Midland Country Club. And a lot of us are like, we will do anything to get into that tournament. You have to qualify. But I'm like, that's the best tournament of the entire year. U.S. amateur, U.S. mid-amateur, four ball, you go at like the Texas mid-amateur at Midland Country Club. And if that happens, boys, you're coming with me and we're pot doing some podcast right in downtown. There we go. That's Because I, I will say this, I mean... Midland has had runs where it has been such a boom cycle that I cannot fathom how there is not a eight-story boutique hotel that's kind of on par with the Four Seasons and how that double tree has been <laughs> the premier hotel in town. Those cookies are good, but they're not that fucking so, but good. So what we're saying is basically they're not doing anything about helping infrastructure, but they're also not putting in a four season. They're not putting in a four season. Again, it's not as fun building a four seasons as it is. So anyway. I, I, I was out there early in my Exxon career and I was still single and it brought back memories to read the first of the article. <clears throat> Tall City Brewing has named its honey blonde ale, quote unquote, five hour drive, <laughs> which is in reference to, what it takes to get somewhere to have some fun. And I, you know, I made a lot of five hour drives, but at the same time you look at um, really what, how critically important that region is not only to the U S but to the world and what's going to be needed going forward. You know, how, how does, how does this problem, this chronic underinvestment, this lower attractiveness to, you know, younger professionals that are, kind of at family stage, um, an estimate is that the basin's going to need over 100,000, 115,000 more workers, new workers by 2040 just to hold its place. Let a Gen Xer explain it to you, Mark. Um, <laughs> I am one. I'm a cusper. My my dad was born in the area there. My grandfather ran West Texas oil fields in World War II. We have a bunch of pussies that are young kids today. And when things hit the fan, they're going to die to work in Midland. And by the way, Midland's going to be the same place it has been since for the next 100 years as it was 100 years ago, or 50s really, when it really boomed. And it's going to be fucking great <laughs> because they don't want infrastructure. They don't want to clean it up because the people there are making money and they don't give a shit. That's my view. What do you guys think? <laughs> You heard it here. Yeah, I was about to say, amen, amen. All right, as we've been doing, and y'all took a break last week, but uh, anyway, we'll jump back on that. Just to refresh the audience, the British girlfriend has chastised us for treating Europe as a uniblock. By the way, not, you are Gen X. I just didn't, I didn't want to throw you under the bus. Oh, well, it's, it's a gray area. <laughs> and the GF, we have to always- Emphasis on gray. <laughs> 
We're not talking about the coronation, Chuck. Is that what you're, We're where you're going? We're not going to talk about the coronation. No, not at all. Although the greatest line of the coronation <laughs> was, I was sitting there going, two great lines. Pierce Morgan, think what you want about him, got off a great line. Only Britain could get away with this, <laughs> which is totally true. But the thing I was struck with was all this pageantry and stuff. I get it. I get how that can be great, the parade and all that. The one thing I would be concerned of if I were a citizen of Great Britain is my sovereign, my leader, Charles, did not come off looking very powerful. I mean, he's being helped around and I get it. He's got all the fancy capes on and the crown weighs five pounds and it's hard to balance in your head. But he uh, he he came off as weak and feeble looking. <clears throat> And the line I love about that is, well, he's always been a bit of a wet lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we're going to say there. And that's all we're going to say. We'll move on. No, but she has chastised us because when we talk about Europe, we talk about it as Uniblock. So we've been breaking down the various countries and their energy policies, energy themes. Um, Don't call it a deep dive. It's not a deep a dive. There we go, Vlad. It's it's a blurb. It's a blurb, but but it's a good blurb. So, So let's do Italy today. So let me start with a couple of facts about Italy, and I'll get you guys to jump in. Italy is home to the world's first geothermal power plant, which was built in Ladarello, Tuscany, in 1904. Kind of interesting. The various islands around Italy have all kind of charged themselves with energy independence. The small island of Pantelleria? Oh, is gosh. is now energy independent. Sorry, Italian listeners. Yeah, sorry. We're not, not, on, not on not on Southwest Network. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're we're uh, we're badgering it. The other thing the Italians have done is they have combined their love of art with solar. They're one of the leading solar um, uh, generators in Europe, and they've combined that with art. So, for instance, the Tree of Life is an art installa- installation in the Lombardy region, which is solar powered. And they're also one of the top, if not the top, producer of biogas in Europe. So fun facts about Italy. I think when you look at the Italy story, you look at 1970, 75% of their energy is uh, oil powered, right? You have the oil embargo. They go into diversification mode. They start and stop on nuclear. So when Chernobyl happened, they shut down nuclear. Well, it's against the law in Italy to, they have zero nu- nuclear plants in Italy and it's against the law. Which and, and that was Chernobyl driven. Chernobyl driven. That was Chernobyl driven. So when you look today, 75% oil power goes to 35% oil power today, which is mainly transportation, right? 40% of their, I say power, it should be energy. 40% of their energy is now natural gas. Then right. you got about 20% renewable. They're probably doing better than than everyone else in terms of the amount of solar uh, versus wind. And then the rest is is little, uh, they've co- a little they've bit got of coal, coal and et right. cetera. They still import 75 to 80% right. of their energy. So kind of like what we talked about Spain, Spain being kind of at the whim of the energy world Italy is kind of there too. So they've had kind of some start and stops economically just because they're tied to worldwide kind of energy stuff. So that's big picture on Italy. 
anything else to add? It kind of reminds me when I was in business school and we went down to study an industry in South America. And guess what industry we got to study? The wine business. And so it was really rough. But we went to Chile and Argentina. And and there's two two things that I took away. In, in Chile, everyone worked really hard at the time. I know things are changing. And then I went to Argentina and I saw the most beautiful people. I was running early in the morning because, of course, as Americans, we get up early and do, do stupid shit. I saw beautiful people walking home at six in the morning from a club. And I was like, I want to invest in Chile and spend it in Argentina. So, <laughs> so I want to invest in Germany, but I want to spend it in Italy because they know how to party. <laughs> what is the, I guess, the, the power... What, what is locally generated or within the country generated versus imported power? We've talked a little bit about the differences, you know, the UK and, and, mm. and France and the importation of power. I, I seem to recall something for Italy being fairly high in terms, in terms of the percentage of, of its electricity that's imported. That's imported. Yeah. I want to say it was 15%, 20%, something like that. And, and relatively small amount of its nukes. So it's it's natural gas. Mm -hmm. And then there's a little bit of coal. They're down to 5%. I don't, I don't know on power, but I know on total energy usage, it's about 5%. Hey, Italy, we, which we didn't throw facts, but there's quite a few oil and gas um, companies based in Italy. Like they actually make quite a few components for the oil and gas industry. Come to Come to find out. They are pretty good at precision machining. Yeah. Pretty good. Is, Their is cars there, are a lot it, more fun it, to drive than my German, but but you know, I wrecked that one, so, so now I'm driving the German car. Other thing about Italy, just they're right at kind of the middle of the pack GDP per capita. Right. And when it when you look at kind of the relative rest to of, the European average. Yeah, exactly. So right about there in the uh in the middle. <laughs> so, you know, when you start talking when you start talking policy and where they shake out, they're probably going to be more sensitive to worldwide hydrocarbon stuff, certainly more so than the French because the French have their, their nukes. And so fun, fun, little fun fact. Um, I was in China in 2019 in December and got sick. Um, came back to the U S doctors didn't know what it was because it was pre testing for, for C-19 Fly back to Europe, coffin, but I had a, I took a two week trip back to Europe and I spent the weekend. I was like, me and a buddy were like, let's go to Italy and, and go snowshoeing, have fun. So we fly into Italy, um, uh, into, uh, the, uh, Venice airport. And then after the weekend, I'm coughing up a storm, fly back. And all of a sudden that's when Italy locked down. <laughs> so my employer at the time goes, Hey, wait a minute. After they started piecing all this together, they're like, wait a minute. It seems like everywhere you go, people get sick right afterwards. And I was like, never went there. They're like, did you go to Italy? I was like, never went there. Patient zero. Patient zero. <laughs> yeah. So, well, they took it, you know, because they, they have a larger percentage of their population that smokes, I think, than any other mm. spot in, uh, in uh, Europe. And so they actually took COVID harder than uh, some other places because they were on their last lungs, if you will. That's a, a good lot point. Of them. A lot of them. So, all right. Who's got a finger of the week? 
No finger of the week from Mark. Come on, Kirk. When's the last you time? You didn't pick one up on the road? No, nah, I had a great time. I had a lovely time. I mean, I'm in a great spirit, but if we have to give a finger of the week, it has to probably have something to do with Midland and the lack of having a four seasons there for when I'm going there for the Texas Mid-Am. What do you guys think? <laughs> Start building. I like. I didn't say what is the narcissistic moment of the week. I said, what oh, was, was that the, narcissistic? There's a lot of those. The, uh, what was the finger of the week? No, I think I don't have one either. I mean, that, are we at a loss for words, which is We're, hard with this group? The energy business has just been so beat up. We're just so used to it. We don't even get offended by it anymore. No. I think that's unfortunately our finger of the week. Maybe we could have our uh, guests come up with we should crowdsource finger of the week for next week there we go we'll we'll crowdsource that on uh twitter That's yeah perfect. the astros when they're on the road they do uh, a weird word wednesday poll on tuesday and whatever's selected as the weird word jeff blum has to work it into his commentary during the during the wednesday broadcast so maybe we'll have a uh, i love that maybe we'll have a finger of the week poll there we go. Right. That's what we should do. Finger, finger of the week. And, and so when I was an undergrad at Rice, I managed five campaigns for state rep because I really liked politics and all. The best candidate I had was a former U.S. attorney. Just amazing. He's I think to this day, Mike Shelby is still the only person to have won moot court at UT Law School twice. Wow. He won it his second year, wow. his third year. What we used to do is wherever he was going to give a speech, I would be in the back of the room and he'd go, today I want to talk about, and I'd put up a sign and he wouldn't know what it was going to be. And it'd be like education or crime or whatever. So you go, today I want to talk about, and I'd put a sign up, education. And then I'd put up a number, you know, I have a five point plan and he'd have to do it. And and he, he was that so, good. he was that good. So we'll, uh, maybe we get a word we have to work in on BDE. So I'm in. Boys. So I, I'll, I'll button it up with one thing coming back to Exxon CFO, Kathy McKells. And if it's pronounced Michaels, I apologize. Um, she actually came from London based Diageo, which is a beverage oh, yeah. manufacturer and had a fairly diverse background before that, including in, in finance and in banking at uh, Canadian Imperial bank. So uh, not the typical, I would system. think she'd be really fun, but now that she's at Exxon, I bet that fun came to a complete halt. What do you think? <laughs> Buzzkill. <laughs> now, now, now. Just wanted to clarify that. There you go. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, be sure to share it with a friend. Please subscribe. Tell everybody about it. We'll see you next week. Peace out.